the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now a word from one of our Bible Live sponsors. Our company is so proud and excited to sponsor the Bible Live. As a businessman, I have to make decisions every day about how to best invest time, personnel, and resources for the best return and results. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation. A sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website www.thebiblelive.com or mail your check for the Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888 That's P.O. Box 18888 San Antonio, Texas 78218 Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Sophie will ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of The Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. All right, we are in the house. Thank you for joining us tonight. Appreciate you being along. This is the Soapster here in the studio, and Jacob is joining us by phone from... Where are you joining us from, Hello? Jacob? What part of the country are you? Hello. In? Hello. I'm talking to you, Jacob. Hello. Can you hear me? Can Jacob hear me? Let me see. What am I going to hear? Hello. Now Hello. can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hello. Jacob, are you there? Well, we'll have to wait getting Jacob coming up here. Uh, Jacob is not there. He must have. He's going to try to call back in. Well, we'll get it right in just a moment. So um, we are in the book of Leviticus tonight. We're in the book of Leviticus. Jacob has gone out west, I believe, to visit with his grandson and family over the holidays. And uh, we are trying to get him back up here on the air. We are deep into this week, the book of Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the first three books of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the first three books of the uh, the Torah, the first which are the five, first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. So uh, we're deep into the book of Leviticus, which is um, it's a very interesting book. I, I don't know is Jacob with us already now? Can you hear me, Jacob? Hello. Hello. Can you hear Hello? me? Can you hear me? He keeps Hello. Can anybody hear me? We can hear you just fine. Can you hear us? Hello. 
We can hear you. I can't hear. He can't hear me, evidently. So I don't know what to tell you, Jacob. We're uh, trying to get you up here, but um, all the buttons are pushed. All the things are right. We're not getting you on the into the program. But he'll get him. John will get it figured out in just a moment. Now, Genesis, of course, is the book of beginnings. It's and we we've gone through that. It's just an astounding book. Leviticus. Uh, Exodus is we begin to talk about Moses taking the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Remember, uh, that's where they ended up in the at the end of the book of Genesis. Uh, and then Exodus is about them coming out of of uh, Egypt. They're camped at the base of Mount Sinai. They receive the Ten Commandments. They receive the instructions for the tabernacle. We've discussed all of this clearly, and just so many more. Oh, so many more fine points, and so more, so many more adventures, and so many more details that we could mention if we had a thousand years, <laughs> but we don't. So we continue to move now into the book of Leviticus, which means pertaining to the Levites. This, these are instructions. And I've told you lots of times that the, the Bible has uh, or at least three, four, maybe five different styles of literature. They have uh, stories, uh, history, and uh, the recap of stories that go on. And uh, that's one thing, and we're familiar with those, the, the storylines, uh, even from Genesis and others. And almost all of the books contain at least some storyline, some event, some history. Uh, then you have books of poetry. Uh, we have that talk about the emotional aspect, uh, the, the the from the from the side of ex- human experience, the ups and the downs, the disappointments, the challenges, the encouragement, the victories, uh, the 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 the, dy- the human dynamic of walking with God in this world. Uh, and so we see the the Psalms, the Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, even the book of Job has a lot of this idea of what it feels like to be the people of God, to walk with him and so on. So uh, you've got history, you've got poetry, we've got instructions, we've got uh, part of the books, some of the books of the Bible, and Leviticus is one of them, that to some degree reads almost like a... Um, Reads almost like a a manual, a computer manual that tell you how to uh, how to do this, do this, push this button, then do this button, and do this button, and do that, and do the other. And I think Jacob maybe has joined us now. Hi, Jacob. Hi. Yes, I have joined you. I was afraid that we were coming apart. No, yeah, there was just one other button we needed to push uh, to make it work. So we got it done, and we are on the line with you. I hope that you are have had a good time with your grandson these days. I've been thinking about you. Hope everything went well. Yes, today is the sixth day, and we have two days left, of course. Well, actually, Monday, because it's in the Bible, it starts at sunset. So tomorrow, Monday. Monica, right? Uh huh. Yeah. That's what we're talking uh, about. And you know that Jesus kept Hanukkah? Yeah, I did know that. A good yeah. friend of mine told me that. Yeah, well, that's, uh, you should listen to that good friend. <laughs> uh, we're glad to have you. Well, yeah, and I was just kind of giving a recap of uh, Genesis and then Exodus, and now we're coming to the book of Leviticus, and I was telling the folks that uh, the Bible has three, four, perhaps sometimes people divide it up to five different kinds of literature. Sometimes it's uh, history, it's stories, uh, you know, David and Goliath, Adam and Eve, uh, Daniel and the lion's den, uh, Paul's uh, missionary journeys, and so on. Sometimes 
sometimes it's uh, it's uh, poetry, like the Psalms and the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, talking about the the emotional aspects of what it feels like to be the people of God, the ups and the downs, the challenges, the failures, the victories, and so on. So you've got poetry, uh, literature, and then you've got some literature that is simply instructions. It leads, reads like a, a manual. Like if you were programming a computer, it says do this, then do that, then do this, and get this, and get this to get it right. And I think that the book of Leviticus may fall a little bit into that category, although every book has some storyline and some stories in it that illustrate certain things, some pictures. But uh, the the book of Leviticus is pertaining to the Levites. It talks about the priesthood. The great theme of the book is God's holiness, uh, that God is holy and that the people, his people, are to be holy and set aside and pure as he is. And so uh, we, we see this theme, uh, you will be holy even as I, the Lord your God, am holy uh, throughout the scripture. So we get to know the, the holiness of God and his purity and his uh, righteousness, his justice. Uh, and uh, and that he is unique and set apart. And so his people are to be unique and set apart. Come out from among them be, be, and be ye holy, says the Lord. So we're, we're to be a distinct way of life, a distinct way of living because of our relationship to the true and living God. So uh, we, we pick up that theme in the book of Leviticus. Um, some folks find it a little difficult because it is a lot of people don't have the by personality we don't we don't learn by manual and by instruction uh sad to say <clears throat> if we would just inst- and read the instructions and obey it we'd probably have a lot uh, a lot happier life and a lot more successful and joyful uh, spiritual experience as well but sometimes we have to learn by experience and we get uh, we have to hit hit the wall a few times and make mistakes and and so on but we we come back to these general themes in the book of Leviticus tell me Jacob as, as from the Hebrew perspective when you look at the book of uh, Leviticus uh, am I on target to some degree at least from our from our point oh. of view, how do how do you see it? How would the book seem from the point of view of the the Hebrew language, Hebrew custom, tradition, and and, and uh, so on? Well, yeah, you're 100 percent right. It's uh, it's about it's primarily to Leviticus, the Levite priest, and uh, and something very interesting. That's interesting aside in all four Gospels, the one group of people that Jesus never picks a fight or an argument with is the Levites, the real priests. He only picks fights with the other people. With, yeah, that's with the uh, the false priest, the corrupted priesthood that was under under the Roman rule, Caiaphas and others uh, in the uh, in the in the um, what are they? What was that ruling group called? The uh, so, so, yeah, well, there were the Sanhedrin, but they were appointed and controlled by Roman hair. Exactly, there was a, a corrupted religious system that uh, it was not running faithful true to God's instructions here about the Levites and their uh, their duties and their responsibilities and the, their place in the society as keeping a watch on the spiritual well being of the nation. Of course, and we see some exceptions to that. We baptized this morning. Uh, about almost a hundred young men and women uh, who had made profession of faith through our Bible studies out at, uh, at Lackland, basic trainees. It was just 
an incredible celebration. If you've never seen a bunch of airmen, uh, they had their friends and family members and some of their fellow the the wing the wingmen, you know, the other other. Uh, Christian uh, airmen that were there to witness their baptism, and uh, after they would baptize, whoa, whoa, he was, uh, and they were whooping and hollering. I mean, there was a real celebration around the, uh, well, the baptism of that. Like using, you must have been using very cold water. It, it was pretty cold. <laughs> I have to confess, it was a little cold, but they uh, they said they didn't mind. But I, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that uh, it, it made us talk a little bit about John the Baptist uh, baptizing Jesus. And when he when G, he said I should be baptizing you, and Jesus says no, uh, in order to fulfill all right fulfill all righteousness, I need uh, you need to baptize me. And of course, we understand that now that uh, Jesus went to his cousin, his second cousin, John the Baptist, because he was a Levite, and that is the proper duty and responsibility and authority of the Levites to uh, ordain and to baptize and to uh, to to superintend these rituals of purification and dedication. And so Jesus went there at the River Jordan because the uh, priesthood had become so corrupted back at the temple of Herod uh, under his uh, 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 under his control over the, the uh, Jewish people. So, yeah, a lot of that has been cleared up for us. And uh, we see then the, the role of the Levites. And now, of course, there are a lot of there are a lot of there are a lot of lessons for us in this age and era as well in the time that we live uh, because we as Gentile believers, we've been grafted in. We're now part of uh, Israel. We are part of the people of God. And at the same time, we turn, we learn that uh, the that in a, what God has done is we are to be a kingdom, all of God's people together, those who love God and obey God and follow God and trust in God, we are to be a kingdom of, of priests and kings. We are now... We are now, to some extent, Levites. We have been ordained now to represent God to men and to, through our prayer and through our intercession, represent men to God. So we, we now have a role as well as uh, as looking out for the spiritual well-being of our communities, of our cities, our states, our, our nation, uh, the people around us. So it, it's a, to me, it's a very beautiful picture. and There's a lot we can learn from the book of Leviticus. Uh, and uh, well, w- with that little yeah, bit of an introduction, uh, let me ask you this. You told me earlier in the week, Jacob, when we were talking, that one of the main themes th- that you felt was in the book of Leviticus, or maybe even particularly for this week, was this whole understanding of of sin and mm-hmm. The complexity of sin and so on, and and the offerings and the and the provisions that God made for the sin of, of His people. There, we have these uh, sacrifices. We have what are the? Uh, if I remember correctly, we have uh, grain offerings. We have. Uh, well, we do, yeah, yeah. Can, uh, can you hear me? Okay, so yes, we hear oh. you just fine. Oh, oh great. Okay. Well, um, okay, yeah, and really, you know, Leviticus is tough, and when. Uh, any young student starts going through it, you think, what in the world is this? And I found that I really saw it was very hard when you first start. And then when you have to start there, and then you go back and finish the Torah, and you do some more studying, and you go back and look at Leviticus, and you think, man, why did I have such a hard time with this? Actually, driving a car is more complicated than Leviticus. And you've got to pass a tougher test to get a driver's license. But as you so well point out, 
And, you know, I know next week is Christmas Eve, right? Yes. Uh, and I know that, uh, you know, from the Christian perspective, of course, the Lamb of God, Jesus, takes away the sins of the world, correct? Oh, yes. We see a lot of that imagery in the, the Passover lamb, the, the Day of Atonement, the, 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 what are you, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all of those things. They have an application. Yeah. Sure, you see all that. And this is just so appropriate because you mentioned sin. And actually, in chapter 4, starts what sin is. And I thought it might be interesting for us now. I know in today's world, in today's culture, we all say that sin is anything, anything we do. And we also take the position that uh, Jesus is a Lamb of God, died for sin, and sin is anything, intentional, unintentional, whatever. But biblically standing, I thought it might be interesting since next week is uh, Christmas Eve, uh-huh. and uh, you'll have a lot to share about that. I thought it might be interesting to see exactly, precisely what sin is from the Bible's point of view, from God's point of view. And we could start actually in taking a look at chapter 4 of Leviticus. Excellent. I will mention that you're right. We're going to uh, finish the book of Leviticus here on Monday and Tuesday in our reading schedule. And then we go into, on Wednesday, we move to the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. So we'll focus then on the birth of uh, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, who who claimed to be that long-awaited promised Messiah. And we'll look at his life, his ministry, and the uh, basis of his claims there to be that Redeemer, that Savior. Uh, so that is where we're headed. But, yeah, yeah, let's do. Let's talk about these things. And I, one general impression that I've had from my conversations with you, and, and I, do, I do find it helpful. I, it's not that I'm... Uh, it's not that I'm, I'm not being critical at all of it. I'm not saying it's wrong or anything like that. But I'm saying it, at first I was a little, you know, I, uh, this the whole idea of categorizing sin and, and you know, this uh, intentional sin, unintentional sin, uh, you know, the national, I guess, national sin or whatever else they might be thinking of there. But you'll explain that to us. It, 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 it was a little difficult for me to take on. I know I know I'm a cad. I know I make mistakes. I know I'm prone to wander. I disobey the Lord, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, because I learn things about God and about how he wants me to live, and I, I realize that I've been doing something wrong, and I learn about it. So I, I, I know I'm full of mistakes, and I, and I still sin, even as a child of God. But I've, I've never really wanted to category <laughs> i've never re- wanted to become a sinologist you know where i where i know uh, but but i can see the value in it now i've begun to come around a little bit and so i'm kind of looking forward to you helping us understand that a little better well, you know if i might and uh, and please correct me if i if i make a mistake but as i understand uh, from the gospels when jesus was on the cross he said forgive them they know not what they're doing correct Unintentional sin. Yeah, we we yeah. take that. We originally yeah. we just yeah. take that yeah. as Jesus being nice and Jesus yeah. forgiving his enemies. But uh, as you're yeah. saying now, as an informed and and mature yeah. Jewish believer, he was saying he was kind of in a sense letting them off the hook to the Father. He was saying, Father, well, they don't was, know what they're doing. Yeah. This, this is unintentional it's, sin, right? It's very important to recognize he did not say forgive them. They know exactly what they're doing. Because had he said that, he would have got it wrong. Jesus actually gets it 100% correct. Not knowing is sin. 
And, and as you were talking about, now I know, as I say, in today's culture, uh-huh. we think intentional, unintentional, anything is just sin, and he took care of the whole thing, and I've got no issue with that, because that's part of the, the present Christian belief system, and I've got no issue with that. But, precisely, sin is unintentional. And if you look over at chapter 4, there's even a second requirement. Now, this this is uh, it's interesting, because this is what it was always historically understood to me. And so when you know, I read the story about Jesus saying, forgive them, they know not what they're doing, I'm thinking to myself, man, this, this guy's got a 100% correct. That's, that's immediately the way you see it and you understand it. If that, and I, and I, my suspicion is, is that is exactly the dynamic of what was happening. Well, I think so. And uh, uh, you want to take a look at Chapter 4? Or? Sure, I'm there already, yeah. I'm looking at okay. it. Uh, I know the version you are reading from would be a little different version than what I've got. I, I've got the English version translated directly from the Hebrew, okay. so mine might be a little different, but that will still come out in substance the same. And uh, why, why don't you read, if you don't mind, from your version, uh, let's say, verse, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, and let's take a look at what it really says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. This is how you are to deal with those who sin unintentionally by doing anything that violates one of the Lord's commands. Okay, is that where that ends? Well, that's verse 2. You want me to read verse 3? Well, no, let's go back because let's take a look. And what what it's saying is you're 100% right. Sin, it's like even in the psalm where they talk about... uh, um, you know, I was born in sin. From the old Hebrew, that, is, that doesn't mean I was doing wrong. That means I did. I was born not knowing right from wrong. Okay. And, and so it was unintentional. So this verse in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it's actually uh, technical would say, uh, if uh, God said to Moses, tell everybody, when a person will sin unintentionally, Now, listen carefully. This is something people don't pick up on, and I'm not saying it's required, but it's good to know it'll take you from being a novice to probably a scholar. (laughs) All right. But but here's the idea. If you sin unintentionally, of all the commandments that God had made to be done and commits one of them, now let's take a look at what it's really saying. So it's unintentional. In other words, God said, you shall not, I'm going to pick something that's small, so it's easy to understand. Uh, don't eat shrimp. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Okay, now, and you do one of those, that's sin. So it's got to be unintentional, and it's got to be one of the things he said don't do. That was the biblical definition of sin. What if you, will you, uh, what if you fail to do something that he uh, commands that for you to do, but uh-huh. Unintentional. Yeah, that's right. And you know what's interesting? You're very, very precise there. That's not listed there. Ah, okay. Yeah. So see, I'm saying so. So when you deal with a you know a person who grew up with this uh, in the Jewish world, they're reading it. They get these rules in their head, and they say, "Well, okay, you're saying that I did something that he did. Uh, if I do, if I did something unintentionally, that he said not do, that's a sin." But if I do something I, uh, I, I was not supposed to do, but he didn't say not to do it, then it's really technically not a sin. 
Now, that it gets a little complicated, but believe me, a driver's license is more difficult. <laughs> now, let me ask you this before you go too much further. Is this about the idea of sin, iniquity, and transgression? What is this where we're kind of headed? Yes. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. We'll come back and continue continue to look at the book of Leviticus and how these different aspects of sin were laid out for the people of Israel and how we could understand them, how this, this could be interesting and useful to us as believers, as the people of God today. And uh, the important thing, of course, is there is a provision that God made for our sin, for our transgressions, uh, and for our iniquity. And we are... Uh, that's a, a, also our focus is God is gracious and forgiving to those who are repentant and broken and humble in spirit. So we'll come back and talk about that in just a little bit. Jacob will continue with us, and uh, hopefully we'll take your calls as well. 340-9585. Don't go away. with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway has taken care of the Dollar family that's Suzanne and me plus our three children for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to drshelton.com or call 590-7878. If you lease office retail or warehouse space for your business, the last thing you want to do is overpay the landlord. But it happens every day. Hi, I'm Scott McMurray and president of Bottom Line Realty Advisors. We work with business people who want an effective strategy for their next real estate decision. Whether leasing or buying, it affects your bottom line. Your landlord has representation and you should too. Even if you're a good tenant with no plans to move at all, you're the most vulnerable to getting a really bad deal. We only represent our clients, never landlords, so we have no conflict of interest. We stay on your side. Call me, Scott McMurrian, at 210-535-7800, and we'll negotiate from a position of strength. BottomLineRealtyAdvisors.com Bottom Line Realty Advisors We get the landlord off your bottom line I was cleaning a toilet and I had this joy and like the hair stood up on the back of my neck and I'm like, wow. Christy Knuckles is a singer-songwriter who felt God calling her to lay down her musical career and be a stay-at-home mom. It really was like the Lord was showing me there can be just as much contentment and joy right here, taking care of your home. That was more joy than I had experienced in years of being on the road. Part of that newfound joy was Christy's realization that God loved her right where she was. I felt beloved by God when I would be on the road and I'd be ministering and I was pouring out. But it was hard for me to switch. Like, God, am I still beloved by you? Like just cleaning the sippy cups today. The answer is yes. And God loves you too. Learn more at findpeacewithgod.net. 
We're the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Find out more about your favorite programs and the ministries on AM630 The Word by going to the program guide at am630theword.com. There, you'll get connected to the ministry website, email, and phone number. Plus, find out when your favorite show airs on the program guide at am630theword.com. Long time ago in Bethlehem, so the Holy Bible say, Mary's boy child, Jesus Christ, was born on Christmas Day. Hark now, hear the angels sing, a new king born today. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Sound and angels sing. Listen what they say. That man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. All right, we are back in the saddle here. Thank you for joining us. This is The Bible Live. Uh, Soapy here on the mics in the studio. And Jacob joining us from a far and distant land in a galaxy far, far away. I think they call it Arizona, right? Yeah, that's right, yes. Good to have you, kiddo. And let's get back to our discussion. We're talking about the book of Leviticus. Folks, if you'd like to join, maybe you have a comment, maybe you have a thought tonight. Uh uh, f- either from the book of Leviticus, this is where our reading schedule has us right now, or as we come and approach the time of uh, Christmas, as we observe and celebrate the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, um, the, the the Messiah, the Redeemer, our Savior, then you can give us a call and, and share something that's on your heart as well. We'd love to have you. And, of course, you can visit with Jacob uh, on the phone as well. So we're, we're here for you. So, But, Jacob, you were giving us a little bit of an in- understanding of sin, iniquity, and transgression, and that they're not the same thing, and how in the book of Leviticus, God spells out the provisions that were made for these different kinds of moral and spiritual failure. Now, sin is, is defined as unintentional unintentionally uh, breaking uh, commands. And we all do this because we're in a process of learning about God's holiness and his commands. And and inevitably we find out sometime or other that, oh, that's not right, that God doesn't want me to do that. And, and we've been doing it. So we, we all come into this category of, of sin and needing a, uh, that involves a sin offering, as we're told in the Leviticus chapter 4. Well, that's correct, and you're 100% right. And, you know, I think you just hit the nail on the head, and if I may say this for, uh, for frankly, the um, purposes of, you know, let's, let's be candid, uh, most, uh, especially in, in the Christian world, these things are not uh, really studied. They're not regarded as something essential and important, and that's okay. So in all fairness, let's say you did not know these rules, then, where there would be a transgression or iniquity or just a sin, it all becomes sin because you simply don't know what is God's classification. <laughs> would that be a so, case of I- ignorance is bliss? <laughs> I don't know. Well, that, that's entirely possible. Yeah, but so in that sense, I'm, give, I'm offering a, a, 
perhaps a defense to uh, a sin, being as we use it in our culture today, that you know, uh, it's everything because we know certain things are not supposed to do. But, you know, sometimes we don't know. And there is a provision in a couple more chapters where it says exactly what you said. If I sin and I didn't know any better, but then I found out, now I'm guilty. Hey, let me ask you a question, Jacob. Could this have been part of... Uh Part of the motivation, a part of the understanding of Jesus, I remember several times in his life and ministry, he commented that he to his disciples that it was, it was given to you to know and understand certain things, but I speak in parables and so on, so that other people won't know, that they, they won't be re- responsible. There seemed to be a sense in which Jesus was uh, kind of protecting people f- we joked and laughed about uh, the bliss of ignorance there, but uh, is there any sense that maybe Jesus in some ways was being gentle in the way he presented his claims and so on to, to not make people overly, I, I don't know if what I'm saying makes sense or not to you, but could he have been sensitive? It sounded like on the cross he was sensitive to this. Uh, is there a chance that in his teaching as well that sometimes he guarded certain people from understanding certain things just because not they were not ready for it or they would not be ready to receive that truth or and he didn't want to make them responsible for it? Is that a is that a possibility? Well, well, of course it's a possibility, and I think probably more than a possibility. It probably is very close to being correct because, and it probably applies to many people in today's world, but it also applied back then because one of the things that was going on back in Jesus' time was they did not want the laws of God and Torah taught. And, uh, and, and so they absolutely could have, like you'll find in the book of Luke where it says Jesus opened up the scroll and read the place and he quotes the prophets. Well, you never read a prophet until you read that particular portion of the Torah that would apply to the teaching of that prophet. Right. So the, and so the first time I read that, I thought, now something's wrong here. Either the guy chose, that's writing this down chose not to record that, or uh, there was a, there's a mistake here somewhere, but it wasn't a mistake. The Romans finally, not initially, the Romans were fairly reasonable. And uh, then as things went on, we blame went on, the Romans passed the rule that you couldn't have, and it was really adopted from the old Babylonian rule, that you couldn't have three things. You could not circumcise your boy children. You could not have a Jewish calendar. And you could not have the Torah, but you could have the prophets. So if, knowing that, if you read what it says in Luke, what's there is a really correct. He stood up and he read from the prophets. Now, if you've been trained... You know that each portion of the prophet comes from some law from the Torah. Right. And that, mean, that means that the example of the prophet is when you did it, things went well, or when you didn't do it, things did not go well. So when Jesus so, read from, uh, I, what was it, Isaiah 61? Yeah. When Jesus read from Isaiah 61 there in that uh, synagogue in Nazareth, they all understood because of their training and, back, they, and tradition, they knew what the companion uh, reading from the Torah was, right? And so they... I would say that a great deal, I don't know if everyone, there probably was a guy that had an uncle at one time met a guy on the road that didn't know, but I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but there was, yeah, I would say if they didn't, they would have people around that didn't know. Uh-huh. And so when you- when you compare that portion of the prophet to what portion it teaches in the Torah, that has always made me marvel. Because, that you know, Jesus was not a little milk toast. He was a, I think he's a pretty stand-up kind of guy. 
And, and so he, it actually ties up to something in Deuteronomy on how to conduct war against your enemies. So the guy standing in the crowd, so he was, you might say, and the Romans would be there listening, so you might say he was talking in front of the Romans but behind their back. Right. Hidden in plain and view. So, <laughs> yes. Exactly. And you know, when we start off, I know this is from last week, but um, if you look at the beginning of Leviticus in chapter 1, it talks about you're supposed to bring a lamb or sheep, something, from your, your own flock. This is what Jesus was doing, as I understand it, and I am an expert in my own opinion. Um, but I think that's what he's doing. And he goes to the temple, and he starts hitting those people with those cords, and he chases them out and says, my house will not be a house of den of thieves, that kind of stuff. Because, see, you were not allowed, under the biblical law in Leviticus, to do that. It had to come from your flock, so that it mattered. It was something important to you. You couldn't just take some cash and buy somebody else's. But the, but the Romans and Herod had set up a system where people could not bring their own flocks or their own lamb, their own goat, whatever. They had to come over there and they had to buy it. And there was a rule that the people that ran the merchandising could not be a Jew. They must be something other than a Jew because they were making sure that the Jews wouldn't do another Jew a favor. So they had to come over there, they had to buy it. And that's why he's chasing them out, because they're violating chapter 1 of Leviticus. It's not yours. I thought there was some passage, Jacob, uh, and it may be my ignorance here speaking, but I thought there was some exception made in Leviticus or somewhere where they were allowed, if they had to or something, to, uh, to, to sell the lamb back in their hometown, and then when they got back to Jerusalem to buy a lamb there or something like that. Wasn't there some provision made, kind of an exception somewhere in the uh, command in the Leviticus? Uh, there is a, I, I know what you're talking about. There's a provision that is still, they, they, they couldn't go buy a stranger's lamb. What they could do is pay somebody to raise their lamb among their flock, but they still own the lamb, still belong to them. I see. This is why, right in, in Egypt, this is why they had to take the lamb on the tenth day, and they had to keep it tied to their bed. They had to build a relationship with that lamb, so they felt something when that lamb died on the fourteenth day. Wow. Interesting. And so, yeah, and so Jesus was 100% right. He's chasing these guys, all of a sudden, you're not, you're not supposed to be doing this. And the reason that system was implemented, in practicality, was that was one of the ways that the Romans and Herod and his boys and the priests raised some money. Because if I went over there and I couldn't take my lamb, I'd buy your lamb for sale, and you might sell it for, you know, I don't know, 20 shekels. And so I'd give you 20 shekels, I'd get the lamb. Then I would bring out another, and I would, in that 20 shekels, would then I'd have, I would buy the lamb, but now the, the merchandisers have 20 shekels. And they would then be able to give a few shekels to the priest, a few shekels to Rome, and et cetera. And then they'd keep getting another pre, uh, lamb from wherever they got it from. And you don't know if that lamb had a blemish or not. All they're doing is selling you something so they can sell it and make a profit and give the money to Herod primarily, but also to the, the, the priests that were employed by Herod in Rome. And then the money that was going into the temple at that time was actually being donated to the Roman gods back at their own temples. So it was a way to make money. So he was, Jesus was absolutely right when he says, you're turning into a den of thieves. This is not your lamb. This is somebody else, and you're letting these guys make profit. 
and I hate to draw this analogy, but it's not hard to draw an analogy between you see a lot of, uh, I hate to say this, some preachers that send in money tonight and be blessed, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, this prayer handkerchiefs and this sort of thing. Well, I do want to, I don't want to get too far off of our theme of holiness and uh, uh, these the different the sin, uh, 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 iniquity, transgression, and so on. I want to, see, but I was also wondering if what happened to the genuine priests like John the Baptist and others during that era. And I suppose there were other times too in which the people of Israel roamed away from God and and uh, left off uh, the worship of God as they were, had been instructed. And the 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 Levites did not have property of their own. They were not allotted land and and the means of support themselves. Did they just take it on the chin and 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 kind of starve? And what what happened to them during those times uh, when, let's say, Israel grew away from the Lord? Would they uh, would for for example, I'm guessing that John the Baptist, that people who were ministered to and blessed by his preaching, he had a huge following. I, I assume that many of those people. Uh, gave offerings to John to help sustain him and his family. Uh, I, I'm just guessing. So, so is that the way it would happen in tough times? Would the Levites uh, that have to kind of be tough and and uh, notch up their belt yeah. a few bit links and, and just keep on being faithful? Right. Of course. Of course. And that is why uh, when when Herod Pontius came into town. He actually sent, he killed several of the real Levites and the priests, and the temple, I should say. And he sent the rest out so they could carry the message. And if you look in the book of Luke, John the Baptist was a full-blooded Levite, and it gives his mother's side and his father's side, and he was. Zechariah and Elizabeth, yeah. Uh-huh. So he couldn't function in the temple, so he had nowhere to go out except this little river out, out, uh, outside, right outside of the temple. And that's why he's out there and not in the temple, because they expelled the real guys and they appointed their own guys. Caiaphas is not from the tribe of Levi. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? It is. It really is amazing how it hooks up with the reality of history and of the era. Well, let's get back to this idea of these offerings, uh, burnt offering, uh, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering. Uh, these all had a relationship in some way to the one of the themes of, of Leviticus too is worship. It's it's uh, the holiness of God and how it teaches uh, the idea of wor- how we can know God and worship God uh, uh, worthily as in a worthy way and in, in a correct way. Uh, and so we have so sin is unintentional. What how do iniquity and transgression play into this? What are those? Great. I'm so glad you brought me back to that because uh, and we're going to use the English, of course, sin, iniquity, and transgression. Sin is unintentional. Iniquity is intentional against your fellow human being. Transgression is a transgression against God. So you, if you go something against your fellow human being, and as one of God's commandments, you've also committed a transgression. That's why in the psalm, I don't remember which one, perhaps, it was a 53, something like that, or 22, I don't know. And it said, uh, where it says, I, uh, my sin, my iniquity, my transgression is always before me. Those are not the same thing. Those are different things. My unknowing, and I've done intentionally against human beings, and I've also, because of that, violated things against God. And what's fascinating is, 
on, as we'll get to probably in a little bit, on Yom Kippur, uh, there is a national animal that's offered, but it's this national that's not individual. For iniquity, intentional against your fellow human being, there's only one remedy given in Leviticus, and that is not just for the animal, you have to make recompense. You have to do it. And that is why? Because you are the animal you're offering. You're offering your your repentance. I see. And they didn't have, uh, you know, they didn't have the Internet and TV, so they had, the, they had a system where you could see a lamb without a blemish burnt up, and you could see the smoke of the meat going up. But what you're looking at, the, being without a blemish, is the idea of being without sin. So a lamb without blemish was a lamb without a sin, a person without a sin. So they could see that when the smoke goes up, it's going up because it came from a lamb or a goat that didn't have a blemish, didn't have a sin, so it became symbolic. So people standing way back in the crowd, they could still see this. It's like watching a football game at a distance. And, of course, that relates to us as believers, as followers of Jesus, in the sense that uh, that's one reason it is so important in the New Testament that talk about that he was sinless, that he who knew no sin became sin for us because he was that Lamb of God. John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in that he was blameless, that there, he was without blemish, without spot. There was that, he was that perfect Lamb of sacrifice uh, so that he could atone for this for the sins of the the one uh, those who uh, uh, for who who received his sacrifices on their behalf that I guess the idea but that's the idea of his sinlessness there and not only factually being true but it was important that Jesus live a perfect life of faith and trust and obedience to the father uh, because if not he would have his own sins to atone for he would not be able to be uh, our atoning sacrifice our lamb uh, our atoning lamb so th- in fact, in fact what I, I find fascinating is what, the, to me, when I read it, I think they're suggesting is, and, and technically overtly stating, is that he was sinless means that he knew all God's laws and he obeyed them. If he did not know God's laws, then he could possibly be sinning. But he knew them. He's without sin. He knew them. And he did them. Therefore, no sin. Wow. <laughs> that, I'm, I'm kind of trying to process that, what that would have been like as a human being to to grow in that way in the faith. Uh, and we know that Jesus was a normal human being. Uh, he, he grew up in the faith, of course, a devout mother and father of devout Jewish home. Uh, he grew in, it told us that he grew in knowledge and, and favor and stature with men and, and, and God. So there was in the process of growth, and yet he did not. We do know one thing that distinguished him. In a sense, he was a, a, a second Adam in that he had no, uh, if our understanding is correct, he had no inherent, irresistible, irrevocable tendency to sin, uh, which is the, you know the sin nature that we all have as human beings, he was like Adam in that, uh, I, and I suppose it's somehow related to the virgin birth, is that he did not have the irresistible, irrevocable tendency to sin, uh, and so he approached the relationship with God in the same way that Adam did from the beginning as a, an innocent, 
sinless person, and yet he didn't make the mistake that Adam did make, and that he didn't fall into sin, and he was faithful, and then he became, on that basis, he became qualified to be our Redeemer, to be the Lamb without blemish, without spot. It, it's a... It's an amazing uh, series of events and teachings and understandings. It goes back. The things we're talking about here now happened a thousand, about 1,500 years before Jesus was even born, which is astounding in a way, too, because we're going back to the Leviticus and making sense of something that happened 1,500 years later, in a way. So, uh, well, let me ask you, in chapter really. 5, yeah, let me ask you, in chapter 5, uh, verse 1 of okay. uh, 5. Well, how does that read in your Bible? Chapter 5? Yeah, verse 1. Okay. If you are called to testify about something you have seen or that you know about, it is sinful to refuse to testify, and you will be punished for your sin. Is that the one you wanted? Well, mine reads a little differently. May I read mine? Sure. Uh, 5, 1. If a person will sin, you know, not knowing, but he knows something, and it says, if he accepted a demand for an oath, and he is a witness, either because he saw or knew, and he does not testify, he shall bear his iniquity. Now, there's a transition between, you know, I'm swearing that I will tell the truth. Uh It is something I know. And I've accepted the oath to tell the truth. But now it's not just sin, because I know that I know. It's intentional. It's intentional. And look at, and in the Hebrew, it's actually translated in English. It's actually saying iniquity. There's a transition. There's an example. Interesting. Interesting. Yes, yes. So, and, so, and what's fascinating, in chapter 4 and later in chapter 7, you actually have the laying out of the king, the priest, the... Uh, Everybody that commits a sin, and uh, in chapter back in chapter four, um, it says you can offer a a goat or a, at uh, twenty seven or even a sheep at verse uh, thirty two, and it says something very interesting. Now, don't worry, we're going to get out of this and we're going to do it handsomely. Okay. But listen to the verse, okay? All right. Uh, let's say we're going to talk about a sheep, a lamb. And it says, uh, 432, if he shall bring a lamb, because we're talking about a sin offering, uh-huh. and we're not saying sacrifice. That word is an adaptation of word that has developed through religious purposes, but okay. it's really awful. Okay. Uh, so, if he shall bring a sheep as his offering, for a sin offering, he shall bring a female unblemished. Now, here is a very interesting thing. Now, people that tend to read this, some don't, and some of them choose to ignore it, but it, there's no way around it. It does say female. And and the only difference between the uh, king, let's say, and an ordinary person, the, or even a non-Jewish person that offers, makes this offering, the king, the royalty, has to do a male. The regular folks, you and I, would have to do a female. Now, the the first step is to say, well, wait a minute, Jesus wasn't a female, right? Yes. Okay, don't worry, we're going to dig our way out of this, and it's going to come out handsome. <laughs> I'm kind of fi- trying to figure out why the king would it would be because of the expense of a male is 
It seems like a male is more valuable because it has the potential of uh, of uh, procreating and and uh, you know in terms of breeding that he's worth more. I suppose I'm not sure if that would be true or not. Um, it's like a good show a bull or a cat well, that we might. Have. I, I didn't know if that had anything to do with it. Well, now here's the interesting thing. We know by the Gospels, and I, I, I say this because I'm offering a thoughtful defense, if I may say, of anybody who would use this. Cause I've heard people use this verse uh-huh. to say, oh, wow, obviously there's something wrong here because Jesus wasn't a female. But I'm going to offer a, a verse, this, a thought here that I've heard others say that I think is correct. Uh-huh. That we know that God was, according to the Gospels, the father of Jesus. Uh-huh. Mary, his mother, was a his mother, a female. Yes. Well, his DNA, uh, a guy can do whatever he wants, of course, but his DNA very likely could have been only from his mother's side, Mary. So he would have the physical DNA, you might say, of uh, his mother and the spiritual DNA of his father, God. So this that would make it in compliance with this rule. Well, that's a leap, and I don't think there'd be any way to uh, uh, confirm that or deny it in a way, right, in, in some ways, I guess. I, I did hear a Jewish uh, professor many years ago talk a, a lot about the implications of the virgin birth, and it seems to me that that was one of the areas he covered. He talked about the uh, the blood, where the, the blood came from the father or the mother, the blood type, and so on, and... and uh, it was very thorough, and it seemed like that was one of the things he mentioned, uh, that, mm-hmm. that possibility. I I think I zoned out somewhere in there because I got a little overwhelmed by it. But uh, a, a remarkable observation and something that does indeed deserve thought you know, because these are serious matters, and Jesus was making a very serious claim about himself and his identity. So... Uh, it's perfectly uh, appropriate to think about these things. Well, uh, we've gone from sin now to iniquity, and, and there's a different offering for each of these, right? Uh, if our the burnt there offering is, is a, to make payment for general for sins in general, I guess. Say again. Time's gone already. Oh, the segment flew by. It really did. Yeah, we're having to take a quick break. We'll come back and and continue to talking about uh, the book of Leviticus, about holiness, about the priesthood, about uh, the sin and, and the atonement of sin. That was the whole theme of the book uh, was God's righteousness. He said, I, you will be holy as God's people has called us to be holy and live holy lives even as he is holy. And I want to bring out the idea, too, that most of the time we take that statement as a command. You will be holy, even as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And and I, I'm all right with it being taken as a command. You know, we're commanded to be holy and live holy lives. But frankly, I, I think also we are very much justified in taking that as a promise, that God is saying, my people, you are going, you will be holy, even as I am holy, and that it, part of the redemptive plan of God is not only to forgive and atone and cover our sin, but for us to be transformed as well and changed. We're given a new nature, made new people, so that sin is no longer a part of our DNA, a part of our nature as God's people. We'll come back and talk about it a little bit more in our last segment on the Bible Live. Don't go away. 
is The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Oh, you better get right just as fast as you can. Wash your sin in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is coming making a list in his book of life he's gonna see who has eternal life jesus christ is coming again he sees when you are sinning he knows when you're uptight he knows when you're in darkness so let's walk in jesus light oh you better get right just as fast as you can you're listening to the bible live with soapy dollar jesus christ is coming Yes, he sees when you are sinning, and he knows when you're uptight. He knows who walks in darkness, so let's walk in Jesus. All right, he knows when you're sinning, he knows when you're iniquitizing, and he knows when you're transgressing, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're getting to now, is that um, <laughs> he knows, right? God knows these things. So there you have it, one of our sanctified, baptized uh Secular Christmas songs, uh, Santa Claus is coming to town, but somebody's written some Christ-centered, God-honoring lyrics to it, and uh, so we share them with you every season at this time. Uh, but we're back on the phone for our final segment. Uh, Jacob is on the phone with me. We're talking about the book of Leviticus. We've read Genesis and Exodus, and now this week, uh, this past week and this coming week, uh, we're going to be in Leviticus. We'll finish it up and then turn to the New Testament to the first of the Gospels, the first book of the New Testament. We'll pick up the Gospel of Matthew with the birth of Jesus of Nazareth just in time for our celebration, our observance of uh, the the birth of Jesus uh, in Bethlehem those oh so many years ago, 2,000 years ago now. But uh, as I just mentioned before our break, that from the book of Leviticus now, we have to jump forward a thousand, almost a thousand five hundred years till we come to the time of Jesus. And yet we see, I think, Jacob, we, we see a little bit of the the, the seamlessness of the, of the biblical narrative of the redemptive plan of God in, in that it, it still makes sense. We see this uh, uh, this scarlet thread. I know a great preacher used to call it the scarlet thread through the scriptures of the redemptive plan woven in and out of all the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. In all of those books, we see the redemptive plan of God being carried out in history, in real time and space. And we see that the theme is consistent uh, with the holiness and righteousness of God, his love for his creation. And yet the problem, it faces up to the reality, the problem of sin and wickedness in our world. And then God's provision in that uh, the Redeemer has come, the Redeemer has atoned for our sins, for all who would trust in God and obey him and receive by faith that gift of salvation, that gift of redemption and cleansing. And then God not only forgives us, but he is transforming our lives as well. And we see all of those themes in the book of Leviticus. Yeah, and I know you like uh, chapter 16 about Yom Kippur, about the, the two goats, right? Yes, I do. I, I, I'm not sure we see it exactly the same. We've talked about it a little bit before. Uh, it's not like a heavy, heavy difference and all, but uh, I guess I see it, it, it. And it may not, I, I'm not quite sure if I, uh, 
if, if how different we might be on it. But um, if you want, we can explore a little bit of that tonight. But why don't you give, why don't you give a synopsis and then we can talk about it for a moment? Okay, uh, my understanding is that on this Day of Atonement. I, I don't relate it as carefully as you do to the sense. I understand the idea of national sin and so on, uh, but I don't rem- understand it as intricately as a detail in such a detailed way as you do. Uh, I basically see it as at one time of the year, uh, the, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, that very special section of the uh, of the tabernacle and later on the temple where the the uh, ark of the covenant was kept and he would sprinkle uh, there were two goats that were brought uh one goat uh was slain and the blood was sprinkled on the ark of the covenant and this was an atonement for the sins of of israel uh the the the, the goat now the this this lamb or whatever was slain the other goat is called uh, the the um scapegoat i guess i don't know where we got that name but the idea is that then they would take the other goat and he would be taken out into the wilderness and removed from the camp taken out and i've always seen that it seems to me a great picture uh of not only the two aspects of our redemption is that we are being atoned and forgiven through the shed blood of messiah and yet then as well, God is seeing we are being transformed as God's people. Sin is being taken out of our lives. Out of, we are being changed so that we no longer, uh, the, the sin nature does not dominate. We now have a new nature that seeks God holy, God's holiness and God's purity, God's righteousness. And that he is growing that nature up within us so that we become, uh, we become not only positionally, legally, right with God through the atonement, but we become we begin to practice and live out our holiness and our righteousness through his sanctifying work in our life. And that that to me is what the second goat signifies. The scapegoat is that God's commitment to purifying and taking sin, not only forgiving, but taking the sin out of his people. So I guess in a nutshell, that would be the day of atonement. Uh, I find a lot of hope and a lot of uh, uh, encouragement to, at that message that God is doing that work in me. Tell, tell me a little bit about. Yeah, no, no. I, I think you got it just fine. And the name of the, obviously the goat that was selected. There was a process. They crossed their hands and they tie a red ribbon around the uh, the goat that was going to be given to. And the word they used was Azazel. Uh, that was the goat that go over the cliff or driven out in the wilderness and generally go over a cliff. And there was a folklore, you might say, that the red ribbon tied around him before he hit the bottom would turn white. <laughs> okay. Well, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. uh, that ties into what was it, who was it, uh, Isaiah, that said, Come now, let us reason together. Uh, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They, you know, Is that the idea the yeah, yeah, sure, you got that. Sure. And what's interesting is we talked a week or two ago about uh, when God, the golden calf, was actually, it's a horrible thing. Uh-huh. The Jews, along with the mixed multitude that built it, they did that. That was their sin part. And, uh, now, Yom Kippur takes place about six weeks afterwards when the second set of commandments come down. 
And uh, and it became, and that's where they learned that this God forgives. Yes, I, so, I love that. I love that observation you made for us. Is that that really did set another aspect that set God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, apart? Is that He was a God who forgives, uh, and 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 I could I I really that struck a note with me. Uh, what you mentioned there. Uh, oh, I had another thought that I was going to ask you about, but go ahead, go ahead. That that, that was a very interesting uh, yeah, observation. Yeah, so probably uh, six weeks later, and they had to, they, they, God forgives because he reissues the commandments. I see. And, and so, they, so they've got, they said, oh, well, okay, we get another chance because they evidently fully expected to get zapped like the Egyptian God would have done to them. Mm-hmm. So what's fascinating, though, is... Uh, when when this starts out in chapter sixteen, the first couple lines makes references to Aaron's two boys. Uh, it was uh, uh, what was their names? Uh, uh, I'm looking for the two names. I know, I know uh, they're in there somewhere. I've got. I'm looking for it as well. Uh, we do. Uh, it does give us their names, yeah. Yeah, and uh, his two sons. Uh, uh, yeah, Nadab, Nadab, and, Nadab and, and Abihu, or Abihu, or something. yeah. And so it starts off with that. And so you, you say, why does this portion begin with that? And it doesn't make any other reference. And then it goes on about the Yom Kippur offering and the et cetera, et cetera. Well, you kind of have to know the story as to what happened. And it actually, the story occurs back in chapter 10 of mm-hmm. Leviticus. And it's so interesting because at the end of chapter 10, uh, it actually says in verse 1920, I believe it is, it says that Moses kind of told Aaron, hey, you got to get on your job, you know. And Aaron says, I can't. My children just died. And I could not celebrate. I could not do it. You'll find it at the end of chapter 10. Yeah, so there's, and then Aaron, Moses says, says he understood. And he let Aaron off the hook of doing his priestly duties because his kids just died. Right. At least two of them. So it makes reference again here at the beginning of the Yom Kippur deal. It makes reference. So we're supposed to catch that in our minds that this is a reference that these two boys did something they should not do. And that's how, and, and they basically become an example of non-kosher conduct, you might say. And so they end up dying. So and this, so it's making reference. Chapter 16 is going back and explaining a little bit of the background of the death of of uh, two of Aaron's sons, is that the idea? No, no. In chapter sixteen, just the first couple sentences, just as uh, Aaron's two sons, when they oh, approached before God, they died. Period. I see, I see. But that's where the portion begins. I see. And so you kind of got to know what happened back in chapter ten when Moses just uh, demanded Aaron do his job, and he said, "I can't. My two two of my children just died. I'm just not up." To I it. see. And that was acceptable. So in chapter sixteen, he's he's introducing. The observance of the Day of Atonement, and he's telling Aaron, no, no. only you can enter, only the high priest can enter into the Holy of Holies no. one time a year, and you no. should not enter in unworthily, and if anyone else does, they would die, and so on. So so now Aaron yeah. under, understands the seriousness of these commands, I suppose, now that he's lost two of his sons. Of course, and, and, it's, and it's supposed to regenerate in our thoughts the bad thing that happened. And it could happen to anybody, even uh, Aaron's sons. So it could certainly happen to anybody. But what's fascinating is, you know, and the one the one lamb that's without a blemish that's offered to God as a symbol. Then you've got the one sent out to Azazel. Now Azazel 
if you look closely at that word, uh-huh. and uh, it does mean it's re- the goat removed, as you say in your questions, it's that. But even more fundamental is a word you'll recognize. Uh, is you ready or is you ain't? I, I am ready. Okay. You're familiar with a story called The Wizard of Oz. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I am. Uh, Oz. <laughs> O-Z. It's uh-huh. not, it's it's really O's, but we say it where everybody says Oz. Okay. You look at the name for this creature, this bad angel. We'll call him the number one right-hand guy of Satan, let's call him. And his name is Azazel, and Azel is the word in it, is the word Oz. Oz is the word for strength. So when it talks about the Wizard of Oz, it was written by a Jewish guy uh, that wrote the Wizard of Oz, and he knew what he was writing. And and so Oz meant strength. So this, there was some strength involved that would lead people to sin. But the, and when that goat that was with the red ribbon around was ran out into the wilderness, it still, still had a strength that would get people like an animal to sin. But it went out into the wilderness, hmm. and so in Oz. What there was, when it says Wizard of Oz, what it's really referring to, and what was the wizard, is really the wizard in Hebrew is Oz, the strength. So what it's saying is he's the wizard of strength. And what did he do at the end of it? And it tied us back into what this Yom Kippur story is about. What happened is when he would tie that, the Wizard of Oz, he was the Wizard of Strength, your strength. Remember, at the end of the Wizard of Oz story, he didn't really give them anything. He just made them realize they had it all the time. And when he looked behind the curtain, the guy pulling the levers, yeah. more or less the high priest, yeah. the, high, the high priest in the tabernacle or temple, if you like, what he's doing, he's saying, look at what you got. You've got the strength. And the, you know, the guy, the, the, the uh, tin man, he had a heart. The, the scarecrow, he always had courage. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't courage, he had a brain. And the other fellow. The lion, you know, the lion. The lion, he had courage. He was the wizard of making them identify their own strength. Ah. So, and so what happens is when we're looking at the story about Azazel, it's got the word Oz in it about being strong. And so what it's saying is he's strong. And he goes out there and he dies. So you have enough strength compared to the God, the animal that's being offered to God. Uh-huh. You have enough strength to be that animal and overcome with your strength the, uh, the other Azazel strength, the animal strength that makes you want to sin. That's interesting because uh, in the New Testament, in Corinthians, uh, it says that uh, no, no temptation has taken you but such as common to man. But God has given us the strength. We have, he will give us the capability to resist the temptation and the sin. And that's all part of this process of sanctification, of being, becoming in our practice, in our life, in the way we act and think and speak, becoming righteous and pure and holy in, in our practice as well as we, in our position. Through the atonement, we've been made positionally right with God. In the courtroom of heaven, there's no outstanding tickets on my record. There's no bench warrant out for my arrest. There's no speeding, no parking. In the courtroom of heaven, my record is is expunged and totally pure and clean. I'm seen as righteous and holy before the throne of God, clothed in the righteousness of Messiah. But now, too, he is at work 
helping me to practice that, to live like that, uh, and, and growing me up in, in terms of my character and my behavior. Uh, and so, I, oh, it's a beautiful thought. I like that. The, he, the strength is in us now as God's people to live. You know, we had the, the, the strength and the power to resist temptation because of God's atoning and his uh, sanctifying work in our life. I like it. I like it. You've added to my understanding, <laughs> or at least my uh, thrill and joy of the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur. Uh, well, let me ask you, isn't there, you can probably help me out. Isn't there a place in the New Testament scriptures where it says Jesus was their Passover and their, their lamb for atonement? Isn't there something reference to that? I believe there is. Of course, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, I'm not sure. I'll have to check and see if there's an actual reference to Jesus as our atoning lamb in, in the sense of a day of atonement, you know, in that sense. Well, look at chapter 16, and let's look over at verses like uh, oh, 14 through 16, and let's take a look at that. It's chapter 16, verses 14 through 16, and I think we're going to see something very interesting this about this. It's talking about the bull in verse 14? No, no, no this is, uh, well, there is a bull, yes, uh-huh. uh-huh. And then when you come to 16, it says, uh, And he shall provide atonement for the sanctuary for the contaminations of the children of Israel for their rebellious sins. Interesting. Now, yeah. yeah that's not just uh, sin not knowing. So what in the world is it saying? Because, and then it goes on to say, I don't know what your version says, but it says the rebellious sins among all their sins. And so what in the world is he talking about? Because it's, it's, he's calling it a sin, not what we call an iniquity, but uh-huh. it's a sin. So it's saying that, look, sometimes, uh, you're, you're, for example, suppose, uh, God forbid, you're in a restaurant and you got in a fight with somebody and you punched them in the nose. You meant the act of punching them in the nose. Uh-huh. But a bone shattered and went in your brain and killed them. God forbid. Yeah. So, so your act, normally you don't kill people by punching them in the nose. You just punch them in the nose. So what you've done was an intentional act, but the result was far beyond what was intended, and that was unintended. Okay. Well, yeah. So Let me see. This so verse says, through this process, he will purify the most holy place, and he will do the same for the entire tabernacle because of... Because of the defiling sin and rebellion of the Israelites, uh, it, it, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, so, so you're s- saying that this would be an atoning work for that kind of situation? Yes, because this is more. Yeah, yeah, this is more than just not knowing and, and being sent. It's something that, how does your verse 16 read in your version? 16. Uh, that's what I just read. It said uh, he'll sprinkle the goat's blood over the atonement cover and front and so on. Through this process, he will purify the most holy place, and he will do the same for the entire tabernacle because of the defiling sin and rebellion of the Israelites. I'm not sure they uh, caught the same dynamic. Or, or do you? They're talking, they're talking about the rebellion. That's intentional. And so they're kind of including, they kind of got it. Uh, it's, it's roughly the same thing. But in your version, it does talk about the rebellion of Israel. 
And so it's talking about something more than sin here. And so, you know, sometimes we get pretty hard-headed. We might get angry. We might do stuff that we should not do. But uh, we can justify it. And we say things, do things perhaps we shouldn't. Uh And so it's actually including these almost intentional acts with unforeseen or unintended consequences. Now, what do you think the day of Yom Kippur was really there for in terms of teaching the people of what what was the takeaway for the people of Israel how did this affect them and their understanding of God and how they should live from day to day how what connection did Yom Kippur I know it was a solemn day I know it was the only festival time that involved fasting if I remember correctly Oh good point good point Sophie good point so what how did what was the was it i mean was i don't i don't understand the idea of the of national sins uh, how did the individual relate that to his individual life the, the, well every person every person has to make an individual choice they uh a yom kippur day of atonement you're being at one with god and so you're going to, if it's insincere, then it's absolutely fruitful. It'd be, uh, fruitless. Yeah. It'd be just like a Christian saying, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But they really don't. So it'd be, it'd be fruitless. So, but the national day is where the, there's a responsibility for everybody as a community, as a nation. And uh, I hate to draw this analogy, but let's talk about perhaps abortion in America. Uh-huh. While we're all here, and we're, we're, we may not be supporting it, but we're participating with our tax dollars, whatever, we're, we're, and we're going along with something. So there's a national aspect to what we're going along with. And so this is also, and see, one of the things, everybody knows in the Christian world that Jesus died for the sins. So that's part of the understanding of Jesus. What people all kind of forget is all the laws of God are the laws of God. And so in the laws of God was an aspect to be forgiven of your sins. And the Day of Atonement, you can do it any time through the year you'd like to. But as you rightly said, and that's a good point, that this is a day of fasting. And even today, it's the, and this is going to be interesting, there are other rabbinical days of fasting. Those are rabbinical. And Uh Jews are pretty good about saying, that's rabbinical, that's not biblical. As far as biblical goes, it is the only day of biblical fasting. And why is that? Because on that day, you don't offer an animal. You don't have a lamb. You don't have a goat. But on that day, you're not feeding your animal, your body. What you're doing is you're repenting. And for one day, you're experiencing what you might call a tiny little death. Because you're offering your body, your animal, uh-huh. on the altar of repentance. Yeah, and it's your understanding, I think, that Jesus, at his temptations, uh, the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, uh, you know, when he had been 40 days in the wilderness and Satan came and tempted, that that, that happened in relationship to Yom Kippur, evidently. If I remember correctly, I, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that's correct because of the similarities are there. And he resisted, as the story says, and he keeps saying, "It is written. It is written." Well, what's written? Well, so uh, and I would say, "Well, it's written. I want to read it. What's written?" 
That would take me right to something. Uh-huh. And so he's, I think that, that, yes, I think that's the association of the time because uh-huh. that is the time when he, he actually defeats Satan. And if you look closely at this chapter 16, you'll see the goat that goes off to Azazel. Uh-huh. He goes off to the side. Yeah. Um, the, the other goat goes to God. And so you've got this symbolism, even a suggesting imagery, I would say. Now, Satan, it says he goes away. He yeah. is gone off with Azazel. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I think there's, it's, whoever wrote this was not a second stringer. <laughs> no, I, I, I think not. Uh, I, and, and I wonder, did they have the same understanding is it your thought, and is it under, that that was the understanding even back? And in other words, it sounds like it's a national day. It, it made, you know what it made me think of? It made me think of the National Day of Prayer. Now, yes. obviously, we yes. have a lot of festival days in our culture and our society. Yeah. Christmas, yeah. Easter, Easter is another, uh, and so on. Uh, the, the celebrating the uh, Resurrection Sunday, and so on. Um, but it, this almost seems like a national day where it, it's, to some degree, some degree, it's celebratory. But on the other hand, at some level, visit our website. It is also atoning and, and repentance. You know. Well, I didn't know it, but our time has slipped away, Jacob. Okay. Gracious. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Tell the people your your statement, your wish for them. All right, sure. Always be the kind of person you would like to have for a parent. Thanks, Jacob. Talk to you next week. Have a safe journey home, okay? Thank you, folks, for joining us now. We'll see you next Sunday. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.